Welcome to Visibility Radio, and thank you for joining me, Kenneth Poir, on this program, Just Why It Matters. Welcome again to this episode of Just Why It Matters. Today we're going to be talking about something pretty personal, and it's about personal safety and security for us who are blind. And to help me with that, I've got Michael Pereira. He is the coordinator for community activities right here at Visibility. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Ken. Now, Michael, let's start off with you telling us a bit about yourself and your background. Sure. I have been, I guess you could say, a lifelong practitioner of martial arts and boxing, um, various disciplines, starting off with uh, karate and then sort of going to more to Muay Thai, Western boxing, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. <laughs> You've got it all. <laughs> oh, no one's got it all, Ken, but we try. Um, in terms of um, working with people with disabilities, I've been employed at Visibility, formerly the Association for the Blind, for 14 years now. Um, Ten of those... I've introduced the Living Safe program, which was formerly called Safe Without Sight, which is protective behaviors, particularly for people who are blind or have multiple disabilities. Prior to that, um, I've volunteered with the Sri Lanka Army for the injured servicemen. And part of that has involved their combat training, getting them back into their physical regime following injury. Now, a lot of those have been shrapnel wounds, to the eyes, which have rendered them vision impaired or blind. So you're no stranger to training people with visual impairments how to protect themselves. <laughs> you could say that, Ken, yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so how important is it for someone who is blind or visually impaired to take responsibility for their own safety and security? I'd say it would be extremely important, Ken, given that over the past 10 years when I've run this course, I usually ask the participants to relate any instances in which they've felt threatened or, you know, they've had to deploy any self-defense type maneuvers that they might know to date. 60% of the participants identified that they'd been in a threatening situation. And when you look at that statistic, that's actually quite high. Yes, that is quite high, isn't it? Yes. Do you think that's changing over the course of the years right here in Perth? I would say it's not getting much better. Um, when I used to run this course in regional areas, um, Albany springs to mind, there were very, very few instances. Um, in fact, I don't think any one of those participants had ever had to defend themselves. In fact, <laughs> I wouldn't advise this, but many of them said they actually sleep with their front door unlocked, oh. even now. So that country town, friendly, safe feel was still very much in effect. But especially in the city. I mean, no one would dream of doing that. And people using public transport have been subject to all kinds of things, intimidation, abuse, which warrants the running of this course. Right. Now, that brings us to perfectly to the next question. Because right. we're encouraging people to participate socially, and that usually includes commuting on public transport, right. uh, engaging with other members of the public, and maybe even participating in specific activities. What should they do and what should they be aware of in terms of personal security and safety? Yes, well, 
speaking directly to people who may be vision impaired or blind, um, I would say that using your senses is not ruled out. Okay, so you're you know lacking some or all of your vital sense, but you know the use of your hearing, your sense of smell for you know alcohol or signs of intoxication and so on. And I'll even count the sixth sense, Ken. So if someone's walking down the street and gets a bad feeling, um, we are sometimes taught to ignore that, but I teach people not to ignore that. If it means just walking that extra block or the long way around, just taking two minutes more out of your day, do it. Right. Yes. So it does seem like as if it's not just about overt behavior, but about thinking through things even before an encounter occurs. You said you had three steps in that whole process. Can you tell us a little bit more? Absolutely. At the three steps that I teach all my charges, first of all, is to plan ahead and to be organized. So for one thing, to know the route that you will be traveling. These days, it's much easier because we've got technology such as, you know, talking GPS um, it's much better to appear purposeful and like you know where you're going rather than look like, you know, the lost lamb in the woods, so to speak. Your choice of bags, footwear, everything like that, if it's practical and responsible and it's so as not to, you know, invite an attack. Um, I've already mentioned awareness and the use of your senses. And the last thing, of course, Ken, is to have some background knowledge. So if you've done some kind of protective behaviors course, if you participate in some kind of martial arts or physical training, you know, once or twice a week, at least it gives you some food for thought to have in the back of your head. It gives you more confidence. Not that I'm saying you're out there <laughs> to pick fights at all. I'm not <laughs> suggesting that at all. But uh, you have strategies at the ready so you don't feel quite as vulnerable. Right. Yeah. Now that's a perfect lead in again to the next question. So what is self-defense? Yes, well, unfortunately, you know, when, when I start my course, I usually ask people that very question. And the images that are conjured up are Bruce Lee or Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> You've got to jump up and fly kick people and uh, do all the physical maneuvers. But that's not the case. Uh, to me, self-defense is a plan. And I think it was Sun Tzu who had the quote that the supreme art of war is to subdue your enemy without fighting. And that is probably the number one principle I teach people, just to avoid a conflict by by being assertive, you know, by having strategies. And the physical side is actually the absolute last resort. I mean, if this person is after $2 or $5 and you have it on your person, you know, why not hand it over? Sure, it might sting a little bit and you'll have to go without your, your cupcake for morning <laughs> tea, but, you know, you're safe. Okay. Um, however, there is that contingent that apart from like taking your money, they get their kicks out of being physically threatening to a person and you have no option but to defend yourself. And that's when the physical side comes into play. Right. Yep. Now, what forms of self-defense are best suited for someone who's blind or who has low vision? Yep. Over, over all the years, over the decades, I should say, um, what I've figured out is that the more tactile ground fighting arts are much more suitable for a person with a vision impairment. And by that, I mean the classical forms would be uh, judo and Greco-Roman wrestling that have a lot of success because even, you know, sighted practitioners of those martial arts and fighting forms do practice under blindfold. 
to get the technique just perfect, proving that it can well be done. Oh, I never knew that. Absolutely. And the more modern forms of um, grappling arts are, of course, popularized in events like the Ultimate Fighting Championships or Cage Fighting, as it's known in the media. And that's actually Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Submission Wrestling, which take their roots from Judo and Greco-Roman, but add an extra few submissions and locks and holds. Now, I'm blind and I've got someone who's threatening me and throws a blow, but I can't see the first blow come. What guarantee do I have that I'll be able to diffuse the situation with, you know, some form of um, defensive moves or to even land a blow if I, I need to subdue the person now that I've taken the, the first blow? Yes, Ken, unfortunately, the brutal truth is there is no guarantee. I mean, as a fully sighted man, if someone was to sneak up behind me and, you know, hit me either with a fist or with an object, I am as susceptible to damage as you are, okay? And that's what that surprise attack and you've heard about the one punch, coward punch in the media, that's what that's all about. This brings us back to that previous point about being aware and using your senses and avoiding because it doesn't take you through those dangerous environments. You sort of go the long way around. Now, had you sustained damage like that, if you lose consciousness, I mean, that's most unfortunate. And as I said, your fighting chance is equal to mine in that regard. However, if you've regained, you know, some of your faculties and you have done some training and you have some strategies, you engage such that, okay, you've administered the first blow, but I'm not going to give you any further opportunities. I'm going to use that opportunity to engage and submit. Right. Now, talking about being subdued or to subdue your assailant. Yes. What would a woman do if she's confronted by a larger person or even a man who is physically stronger? You know, the natural strength of a man is probably 30% or, or more than a woman. How would she be able to handle herself? Well, that is true. That is very true about the difference in strength. But when you look at a lot of martial arts, the roots have been established by people such as monks and, in fact, women. And that's the reason they came about to defend themselves from attack through use of technique and strategy and precision. Okay. Um, apart from that, I must say that on my course, I teach people several dirty tricks. I mean, this involves, you know, using a stiletto heel on the foot. Oh, that's It sounds... involves scratching. It oh. involves gouging. It involves fish hooking. Ouch. <laughs> and using even, you know, the hot cup of coffee that you might be carrying to uh, deter an attacker. <laughs> and <you laughs> what, whatever enhances survival. Whatever can. there is uh, yeah. at hand. Yes. What sort of timeline do we have? I mean, let's say if I begin a course today, how long would it take the average person to be able to become not fully proficient, but at least a little bit more confident about handling a bad situation? Now, that is a very tough question, Ken, because, I mean, if you or I were given classes in mathematics, I mean, you might graduate... Ah. You know, I would take 20 years. Yeah, well, I'll take 40. Okay, and, and this is my point. We all have, you know, different strengths. We absorb things at a different rate. However, I must say, when I've traveled into the rural areas of WA and so on, I haven't had a great deal of time. They've largely been one-day courses or two-day courses, and I'm pleased to report that even after the one-day course, in the feedback that the clients have provided, either on their forms or verbally to me, They've expressed that they feel more confident already. What I tell them is, 
while this might feel like a flood of information, at least take one to three things away from this class that you will think about, that you will practice, and hopefully that you will have on the ready should you ever need it. And I hope you don't, but should you ever need it. <laughs> <laughs> now let's talk about how it works. Are we talking about nifty moves and what sort of natural defense mechanisms would a blind person have at his or her disposal? Yeah, look, the last thing I want, Ken, is for someone to be startled or in the emergency situation and then be wondering, oh, which foot did Michael say I need to have forward or which hand do I use for that? <laughs> I'd much rather a natural flow and to establish that natural flow comes practice, okay? And some of the strategies I introduce, I invite family and friends to join them on the course, okay? In the hope that they will carry on practicing some of the things that they've learned. I also encourage and assist with referrals to their local martial arts clubs and so on, so that the only way these things become a learned reaction is repetitive practice, Ken. And that's what we're trying to establish. I mean, we can't expect miracles after a one-day course. Right. But work gets results, as you know. That's right. Yep. That's right. Now, I carry a cane, and some people would have other little gadgets on them. Would they present an opportunity to use them as defensive mechanisms? A hundred percent. Using a cane, I can show you at least three different ways in which you could use it to defend yourself. Oh, wow. Yes. That's, that's all exciting. And the, the same goes, you know, for your bag, the same goes for your shopping, the same goes for the bunch of keys that you might be carrying or the deodorant that you might have inside that bag. Uh, there, there are endless options, Ken. That's, that's amazing. Now, let's talk about real situations. You said you had sort of a case study of a, yes. a real situation that occurred. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, well, I will start off by saying that I actually asked this gentleman for permission to tell his story and he was only too happy uh, <laughs> to convey this. So Charles in Geraldton, if you're listening, <laughs> I'm using the example and taking you up on your offer. It's so, a great shout out to Charles in <laughs> Yes, Geraldton. Charles in Geraldton. I can't remember his surname, but I remember Charles. Um, Okay, so I was doing my Living Safe course, uh, one or two day course, I can't remember, in Geraldton a few years ago. And as I said to you at the start of this interview, I usually ask the participants if they've had any situations in which they felt threatened or had to defend themselves. And Charles's hand went up and Charles had very low vision. Um, he was, uh, I would estimate him being in his 70s. Okay, and the only exceptional thing about Charles, I would say, is that he was rather tall, okay? And he told me that he was having a few drinks <laughs> at the local in Geraldton one day, and he lived within walking distance. So as he always does, he got up to leave, and as he left, he sensed two men get up and follow him quite closely. When they were on the dimly lit street, they muttered among themselves... And then, this is a classic danger sign, Ken, they split up. So one went to his left and one went to his right, and they were shadowing him as he could hear from their shuffling footsteps. Oh, wow. Yes. Now, Charles did some quick mental arithmetic, and he figured out that at his walking speed, with vision impairment, and yes, a few drinks in him, I'm sure, <laughs> that he wouldn't reach home before they caught up with him. And also he was wondering, should I reach home? Because they will then know where I live. So Charles made a quick judgment 
and walked over to a street lamp that was nearby, very confidently leant against it, crossed his arms, and gave a direct gaze at where he thought either one or both the men were. Okay? Absolutely bluffing that he was looking right at their face. And he said he heard the two men sort of come together and just broke off in one direction and kept going. Now, Charles just kept leaning on the post for a long time. He couldn't tell whether they were still lurking there or gone, but he was just erring on the side of caution, just looking in his pockets, just, you know, inconspicuously wasting time. And when he felt confident, he carried on the rest of the way. And he said to me, Michael, you know, did I do the right thing? And I said, Charles, that was perfect. You were aware. Mm -hmm. You sense a danger. More importantly, you sense a danger signs. You asserted yourself. You used deception. And most of all, you didn't have to physically engage in a scuffle. So you know. his behavior, his body language was, was formed of, of, like a deterrent. Absolutely. I mean, he used his one natural asset, which I said was height. You know, he stood at a height of about six foot two, perhaps. Oh. And he said he, he raised up to his full height, crossed his arms and just gave the most direct gaze that he could in the direction he thought they were. Oh, that's fabulous. That's a yep. great story. Absolutely. Now, talking about confrontations and things like that, Are there other ways that one would make a mistake in aggravating a situation when in that, um, you know, finding yourself in that spot? Yes, I've seen it many times over. Like, I've also got a background, you know, doing uh, nightclub security and also security for private parties, which I still do on occasion. And uh, yes, I've seen it all before. And I think people make a mistake by being one of the two extremes. And I'll give you the example Let's just use the example of when someone asks aggressively, give me 10 bucks, okay? And the first person would go, oh, look, please, you know, I don't have any money, don't hurt me. And obviously, you come across as extra vulnerable. And the bully in that person flares up in that instance. The other extreme is when they come off too aggressive, like, no, go and get stuffed and get a job, you know, <laughs> which, which which is obviously going to anger that person yeah. into possibly attacking you. You're provoking a situation. Absolutely. So what, what I try to teach all the people that do my course is to be confident and assertive. So turn around, make eye contact, even if you can't see the person, you look directly, you know, in the direction you think they are, just as Charles did, and say, look, I'm very sorry. I don't have anything to spare on me. Sorry about that. I have to go now and keep walking very directly and confidently. So voice and body language is just as important to the self-defense concept. It is the first part of self-defense, Ken. Right, right. Now, Michael, we're talking about Charles from Geraldton, and you said he was in his 70s. Now, that begs a question. Do we have to make adaptations or modifications for people who are in their senior years and don't have the same amount of physical strength or may not be as agile? The good news, Ken, is that my courses are for everyone. Um, I do make certain adaptations. I even teach people, you know, who might be using a walker, how to use their walker as a physical barrier from the attacker making it awkward for them to launch any kind of offensive against them. Um, In the same way, you asked me previously about the blind cane. Um, I do the same thing with a walking stick. It's just as effective. 
and all those types of strategies. And uh, a lot of seniors, you know, they they ask for strategies about their home and when they're commuting. And as part of the course, we often invite someone from the WA police force to come out and address those, you know, from the perspective of law enforcement as well. And with public transport, I know there are train offices and security offices um, at hand. Yes. Um, is there something that we've not talked about in terms of, I mean, I spend quite a bit of time on trains and there are situations, as you've mentioned, where I sense that um, the car is a little bit empty, but there's one or two people and I can't figure out what sort of personalities I'm dealing with. I see. Where does one go to get help if you want to avoid a confrontation within the car of a train? Well, Ken, I mean, I don't have that much experience on trains myself, but from the clients that actually commute on a regular basis, they tell me, you know, where possible they move to an area where they're not sitting directly across the aisle from such people who might be being a nuisance. Um, They also position themselves in such a manner that they can't be cornered to the to the wall of the carriage because that's the last place you want to be if you know in the unfortunate event that you have to actually deploy physical defense you know so even if it means standing up and holding the rail or taking the corner seat or you know getting on your mobile phone to seek help you just use whatever strategies always thinking always aware All great points, Michael. All great points. Now, my final question. If I was with someone and I've been trained and I'm not sure whether my mate is, you know, has got the right stuff. Mm -hmm. Do I take over the situation when when confronted? Ken, this is equality at its finest. I mean, you're you're asking me as a vision impaired man, would you let the sighted person take control? But no, look, you know, you've you've had the training, yeah, and you are best equipped to handle the situation. I mean, that friend might react in one of those two extremes that I outlined in my previous question, and you don't want that to happen because that can actually instigate the attack. So, you know, having had the training, it's immaterial if your friend's there or not. You react to that as best you can. You know, being assertive, being confident, avoiding the confrontation, and if absolutely unavoidable, deploying in self-defense. Great. Now, my final question, where does someone go to get themselves, you know, familiar or at least um, trained to learn the basics of self-defense? Well, here at Visibility is a good starting point. I normally like to give people an introduction Um, especially if they've never, ever done any form of martial arts or protective behaviors training before. If they like it, and I dare say the majority of participants fall into that category, I actually assist with, you know, finding them a club in their local area and maybe even spending some time in that club or with the instructors of that club to make sure that our clients are successfully integrated into their program. That's wonderful. I'll be the first in your list, Michael. We look forward to having you on board, Ken. (laughs) Michael, thanks so much for being with us, and that's all really great information. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. That's what we've got for you on this episode of Just Why It Matters. Till we meet again, this is Kenneth Poir. See you soon.